Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, three-dimensional chess. Back when I was in eighth grade in Kent Junior High School, I was a member of the chess club. It was the only year that I was a member of a chess club, and we had a lot of fun going from school to school and competing in chess tournaments. Now, I was never really very good at the game, but I did have a lot of fun playing against the other members. I knew some very basic moves. I knew some very basic strategies, one of which, as I recall, was to try and take control of the center of the board. And I remember getting a book about how to play chess. It was a big book and in it were many, many diagrams about a number of different gambits, a number of different strategies to use in playing chess. That was beyond my ability. And I remember looking at that book and maybe reading the first chapter, but I never got into the subsequent chapters. It all just seemed hopelessly complicated to me and something that I would never be able to master. And frankly, I never went beyond that very basic level. But in the TV show Star Trek, Mr. Spock was not just a master of chess. In that show, there was something called three-dimensional chess. And they had the regular chessboard, and then they would have other little bits and pieces of chessboard above it. And the chess pieces could move on the regular board, or they could move up above it. And somehow this was supposed to be three-dimensional chess. The idea being, I think, that chess is complicated enough, but three-dimensional chess is going to be super complicated. This is something that only a Vulcan can do. But back during this time period of the early 70s when I was in eighth grade, Star Trek was gaining popularity after it had been canceled after three seasons in 1969. And I remember you could actually buy a 3D chess set and take it home and put it together and you could play 3D chess too, just like Mr. Spock. Well, my brother Cam got one of these chess sets and I honestly can't even remember if he put it together or not. I can't remember if he played chess on it or not. I know I didn't play chess on it. That was way too complicated. What I do remember is that in eighth grade, I took one of the big plastic pieces of chessboard and thinking it would be a funny joke on my brother Cam, I stuck it in his bed under the covers way down where his feet would be, thinking that the next time he got into bed that night, he would have a little surprise. Well, as it turned out, before he got into bed that night, he sat down on the foot of his bed, and he ended up sitting right on the piece of chessboard, that plastic piece of three-dimensional chessboard that I had so cleverly hidden under his covers, and he broke it in half. Crack! ruining not only that piece, but the entire 3D chess set that he had. Because the rest of the three-dimensional chessboard pieces were no good without this piece. And I remember getting in a little bit of trouble with my dad over that. Because apparently there was only one suspect who would do anything that stupid. And that was yours truly, Radio Free Mormon. And my protestations of innocence were lost on my father. But the reason I bring up 3D chess or three-dimensional chess is because I've been talking about the account in the Book of Mormon in 3rd Nephi about Jesus' ministry to the Nephites. Today is Friday, April 17th, 2020. Two days ago, on Wednesday, April 15th, I presented the first part of a paper I wrote seven years ago dealing with layers of complexity in the Book of Mormon. That first episode was called Overcoming Gravitational Fields. There I talked about one layer of complexity in the Book of Mormon. Yesterday, on Thursday, April 16th, 2020, I talked about the second layer of complexity in the Book of Mormon, and specifically in this particular part of the Book of Mormon. That episode was titled, Wax On, Wax Off. And today, I'm going to talk about the third layer of complexity in this account, in the Book of Mormon. And that's why I'm calling this 
three-dimensional chess. The first layer, as you will recall, has to do with the Sermon on the Mount situated in the Book of Mormon narrative at the beginning of Jesus's ministry and how echoes and allusions to and elaborations upon that Sermon on the Mount end up being brushed forward through the rest of his teachings to the Nephites. And I gave 15 or 16 different instances of that phenomenon. It is not something I think I'm making up. It's something that is actually there in the text in black and white, and I presented my evidence for it there. By the way, brief parenthetical comment, I am always aware of the possibility that I can be seeing things in the text that really are not there. Human beings are pattern-making creatures. Our tendency is to see patterns in things, even if there are no actual patterns that were put there in the first place. In other words, we can look up in the sky at clouds and our brains will try and arrange patterns out of those clouds. Now, there's no real pattern in the clouds. They're just clouds for crying out loud. But our brain tries to see patterns in them. And we might see a ship in the clouds or a face in the clouds or a dragon in the clouds or whatever it might be in the clouds. But we know that nobody actually formed those clouds in order to create that pattern. It's something that our brain is superimposing upon a random structure and interpreting as a pattern. So that's why I say, I think I'm not making it up because there's always the possibility I could be making this up. I could be seeing a pattern where there is no pattern. However, that's why I've gone through and given you all the evidence upon which my analysis is based so that you can see that indeed it does appear that this was put there. This was done intentionally by the author of Third Nephi, whoever that author might be. It's not something that is just random stuff and my mind is superimposing a pattern. Instead, it really appears to actually be reflected in the text. In the same way, that second level or that second dimension to this account I talked about yesterday and that had to do with the three chapters from the Old Testament that are quoted at the end of Jesus's ministry to the Nephites. And I talked about how Teachings and concepts from those three Old Testament chapters are brushed backward onto the account of Jesus' teachings to the Nephites. So at one and the same time, if you can visualize this in your mind, we have three chapters from the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning. We have the three chapters from the Old Testament, Malachi 3 and 4 and Isaiah 54, at the end and in the chapters in between, at one and the same time, not only are the New Testament chapters being brushed forward and referenced in Jesus' teachings, but the Old Testament chapters at the end are being brushed backward into Jesus' teachings and actions. And I left off yesterday by saying that it was impressive enough and it was one layer of complexity just to have the New Testament brush forward into Jesus' teachings. And it was also a layer of complexity to have the Old Testament by itself at the end being brushed backward into Jesus' teachings, but to have both happening at the same time, the New Testament brushing forward at the same time as the Old Testament is brushing backward and overlapping each other in between, that raised the level of difficulty even higher and made the level of complexity even greater. Now, what I want to do today is talk about that third layer of wax, that third degree of difficulty. In other words, not only is this happening below with the New Testament and the Old Testament, but this is all being done within a structure that appears to be intentionally superimposed by the author upon this narrative. And it is the structure, this third degree of difficulty that I want to talk about in today's podcast. Now, once again, I'm not trying to prove that the Book of Mormon is true. I'm not trying to prove that Joseph Smith is a prophet. All I'm saying is that whoever wrote Third Nephi appears to have done it in a manner that was intentionally complex and in some ways quite remarkable for its complexity. 
Oh, and by the way, I have not looked at this paper for about seven years ever since I first wrote it. I kind of just forgot about it and went on to other things. So now that I'm going back to it and digging it out of the archives and blowing the dust off of it, I am rediscovering what it is that I wrote seven years ago. I do not even know what this structure is that I'm talking about because I have intentionally not gone forward and skipped ahead and read it in advance of this podcast. I am going to be doing a cold reading of it and I'm looking forward to it to see if it is as impressive to me now as it was seven years ago. So you are hearing this effectively at the same time as I am hearing it. So I'm really looking forward to this and I hope you are too. This should be fun. Here we go. The first section is titled A Little Background. This is the final of three articles. The first article looked at how Jesus' ministry to the Nephites begins with three chapters quoted from the New Testament, being the Sermon on the Mount as found in Matthew 5-7. through How those chapters are not just filler, but how pieces of the New Testament chapters are brushed forward and found in approximately 15 places throughout the rest of his subsequent teachings. The second article explored how Jesus' ministry to the Nephites ends with three chapters quoted from the Old Testament, being Isaiah 54 and Malachi 3 and 4. How those chapters are not just filler either, but how pieces of the Old Testament chapters are brushed backward and found in numerous places in his previously recorded teachings and deeds. So while the author was recording this ministry in 3 Nephi, he was apparently able to brush forward from the New Testament chapters while simultaneously brushing backward from the Old Testament chapters. This indicates a high degree of structure, sophistication, and planning. It is not what one would expect from a narrative being dictated off the cuff. Adding to the complexity of the narrative is the fact that a readily identifiable structure appears to be superimposed on the text. This article will explore this structure. The next section is titled, A Brief Tangent. So I'm going to go off topic here, but it'll be important later, I'm sure. Once again, I'm just reading this for the first time in seven years myself. So I hope it'll be important later. In order to talk about the structure, I first have to talk about the use in the Book of Mormon of what is sometimes called resumption in the text. Readers of the Book of Mormon are well aware that there are times in the plot line where the author digresses from the main point and begins to wander off on a tangent. Close readers of the Book of Mormon are aware that, seemingly without fail, the author always comes back to the point and resumes his discussion from where he broke off, no matter how long it takes him to do so, and sometimes it takes him an awful long time to get back on topic. We have all had the experience of talking with someone and going off on a tangent, then trying to remember what we were saying originally. Sometimes we remember. Sometimes we don't. More often than not, I don't, frankly. Sometimes we ask the person we are talking to if they remember. It can be frustrating. I am one of those people who as often as not... See, I actually write it here. But I, <laughs> I am one of those people who as often as not can't remember what I was talking about before I went off on the tangent. Perhaps that is why it is so impressive to me that the Book of Mormon seems to always remember. For instance, 1 Nephi 5 and 10 says that Lehi prophesied many things concerning his seed. The text then goes off on a tangent of how Nephi and his father kept the commandments and obtained the brass plates, 
Then Nephi's statement that he will write the things of God on the small plates and not go into too much detail about more worldly things because they are in the record of his father. This is all part of the tangent, you see, and that he will command his seed to do the same. This digression goes from 1 Nephi chapter 5, verse 20, all the way through 1 Nephi chapter 6. Although, admittedly, 1 Nephi chapter 6 is a rather short chapter. But sure enough, when we get to 1 Nephi chapter 7, verse 1, the subject is resumed with the words, And now I would that ye might know that after my father Lehi had made an end of prophesying concerning his seed, dot, 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 and then it continues. So 1 Nephi 5.10 says that Lehi prophesied many things concerning his seed. It goes off on this lengthy tangent. And finally, in 1 Nephi chapter 7, verse 1, it resumes the subject that was left earlier by saying, And now I would that ye might know that after my father Lehi had made an end of prophesying concerning his seed, dot, 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 and then it goes on with the narrative. So that's why this literary form is called resumption, because it introduces a subject, goes off on a tangent, and then later on comes back to resume the subject where it left off. Another example is 2 Nephi chapter 26, verse 1, which speaks of the time, quote, After Christ shall have risen from the dead, he shall show himself unto you. A digression follows until it picks up on this subject again, resuming in verse 9. But the Son of Righteousness shall appear unto them. So 2 Nephi 26 verse 1 talks about Christ showing himself unto you. It goes off on a tangent and then verse 9 resumes the subject that was left eight verses before by saying, but the Son of Righteousness shall appear unto them. You see how that works? And this happens with some regularity in the Book of Mormon. Now to the point. A classic example of this resumption is found in 3 Nephi. So we're getting back to the account of the Savior's visit to the Nephites. A classic example of this resumption is found in 3 Nephi, where in chapter 16, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Thus hath the Father commanded me, that I should give unto this people this land for their inheritance, and then the words of the prophet Isaiah shall be fulfilled. After that, three verses of Isaiah are then quoted to complete chapter 16. Then ensues a lengthy digression of three chapters. This is a huge digression. Then ensues a lengthy digression of three chapters, and during those three chapters, an awful lot of things transpire. And here I'm going to give you a thumbnail sketch of the different events that happen between the time Jesus leaves his initial subject and the time he finally gets back to it three chapters later. Starting with the events of chapter 17, Jesus says the people can't understand his words right now, so he is going to give them the night to think about it because he has to go to his father and then to the ten tribes of Israel. But the people long for him to stay, so chapters 17 and 18 are filled with things that Jesus did and taught the Nephites at the end of the first day of his ministry among them, at the end of the first day, but after he had originally planned to leave. Jesus finally leaves at the end of chapter 18. Chapter 19 has the Nephites going out to gather in everybody to the temple so they can be there the next day when Jesus arrives. Then the disciples teach the assembled crowd what Jesus taught them the day before. All are baptized and a great deal of praying ensues, during which Jesus joins them in prayer and offers his own intercessory prayer to the Father, which continues into the first 10 verses of chapter 20. So see how far away we are now. From chapter 16, verses 16 and 17, where Jesus initially says, 
Thus hath the Father commanded me that I should give the people this land for their inheritance, and then the words of the prophet Isaiah shall be fulfilled. That was way back in chapter 16. So we're all the way into the first 10 chapters now of chapter 20, where the sacrament is again provided and partaken by the multitude. So what was it Jesus was talking about right before he intended to leave the Nephites the first time in 3 Nephi 16 verses 16 through 17? You can be forgiven if you have to look back to check. Imagine how much more difficult it would be to remember if you had read all of 3 Nephi 16 verse 18 through 3 Nephi 20 verse 10 before being asked this question. If you had sat down with the Book of Mormon and actually read everything that I have just synopsized, how hard it would be to remember what was it Jesus said way back before he said he was going to leave, but then the people begged him to stay, so he stayed around for another several chapters. But the Book of Mormon remembers with absolute clarity and resumes the discussion where Jesus broke off three chapters earlier with Jesus saying, Behold, now I finish the commandment which the Father hath commanded me concerning this people who are a remnant of the house of Israel. You remember that I spake unto you and said that when the words of Isaiah should be fulfilled, dot, dot, dot. So he picks up exactly where it was that he had left off three chapters earlier. And that quote is found in 3 Nephi 20, verses 10b through 11a. You remember that b signals the second half of a verse and a signals the first half of a verse. So that's 3 Nephi chapter 20, verses 10b, the second part of verse 10 through 11a, or the first part of verse 11. Jesus even makes it clear that he is referring back to what he said three chapters before. So this isn't just me seeing something in the text. Jesus himself, within the narrative of 3 Nephi, is saying that he's referring back to it. Because he says, Ye remember that I spake unto you. And sure enough, he does remember. The next section is the literary structure of Jesus' Nephite ministry. Okay, now we're going to get down to it. This resumption of the narrative in 3 Nephi ends up playing a part in the overall structure of Jesus' ministry. The structure resembles a chiasmus. Yes, chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. And I've got a feeling that this is a chiasmus that I discovered. Well, I guess it must be. It would be too much to say that it is a perfect chiasmus. Okay, so I'm not going to overplay my hand. I'm not going to overstate my case. That's good. But the obvious pairing of events and teachings is present as shown below and appears to be of such a nature as to indicate an intentional structuring on the part of the author. And here I have a chiastic structure. By the way, for those two of you out there who are listening who don't know what a chiasm is, a chiasm is a structure, a literary structure, in which there are a number of elements in the text. And the elements proceed into the text in a certain order. Of course, anything in writing has to proceed in a certain order. But the key is that once it gets to the middle, it then works its way out of the text by repeating or echoing the original first set of elements in reverse order. It is sometimes called a reverse parallelism. It is called a chiasmus as well after the Greek letter chi, which itself is drawn as an X. Because if you visualize this, this is like an X or an hourglass. With the top of the hourglass or the top of the X coming down to a point in the middle. And then after the hourglass or the X gets to the middle, it then moves out in the exact same way it moved in above, except that it's the mirror image of itself. If you drew a line right through the center of an X, the top part is the mirror of the bottom part. In the same way, a chiasmus is a literary mirror where the top part is mirrored in the bottom part. 
And now actually I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to describe to you this chiasmus. And it's a little bit of a tricky thing because if you could actually see it in writing, the structure would be clear to you. My challenge is to describe it to you in such a way as that you can hear my description and you can understand what it is I'm talking about and you can see in your mind the structure as I'm describing it. Let's start off with a simple example. Old King Cole was a merry old soul and a merry old soul was he. We all know the children's rhyme. That is a very simple chiasm. It has two elements to it going in and two elements coming out. The first element is Old King Cole. That would be marked as A in a chiastic structure. I don't know why. That's just typically the way it's done. That would be marked as an A. And Old King Cole A was a merry old soul. Merry old soul is B. That's the second part of the chiastic structure going in. So we have Old King Cole A was a merry old soul B and a merry old soul. Now it's coming out of the chiasm. And a merry old soul, that's B, was he. And he is A because it refers to Old King Cole at the beginning. So what you have is A, B, B, A. And you can see how the elements go into the chiasm and they come out of the chiasm in reverse order. In a similar way, we can think of the famous statement by John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. There, following the same pattern, ask not what your country, that's A, can do for you, you is B, but what you, B, can do for your country, A. Once again, we see the same pattern, A, B, B, A. It is a reverse parallelism, or in other words, a chiasmus. Now, those types of chiasms happen frequently. They're simple chiasms. They only have two elements to them. As you add more elements to your chiastic structure, you increase the degree of difficulty and the degree of complexity. And what I'm talking about here in 3rd Nephi is a chiasm superimposed upon the entire narrative of Jesus's ministry to the Nephites. And it consists of seven elements going into the chiasm. That's A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That's seven elements. Then there is an H element, which is at the center. Sometimes chiasms have a center element. And indeed, we'll see why it has this center element of H. That's the eighth element. And then coming back out of the chiasm, we have those same letters only in reverse order. So now having described that to you, let me take you through the chiastic structure that I see in the Book of Mormon's narrative of Jesus' ministry to the Nephites comprising 3rd Nephi chapter 11 all the way through to the end of that ministry in 3rd Nephi chapter 27. The first part, A, is chapter 11. And that's a very good place to start because that's where Jesus appears to the Nephites. Jesus appears to the Nephites. His first order of business is to do away with contention regarding the proper mode of baptism. So he does away with contention and he sets forth his doctrine, which consists of faith, baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost. That's in chapter 11. Now in part B, moving into the chiasmus, the second step, this is chapters 12 through 14. Well, that's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus cites three chapters of New Testament text. Oh, I know what the bookend of that is going to be. It's going to be Jesus citing three chapters of Old Testament text at the bookend. Yeah, I know where this is going. C is chapter 16, where Jesus teaches about the scattering and gathering of Israel in the last days. The next step, D, is chapter 16, verses 16 through 20, where Jesus introduces three verses from Isaiah 
That place marks the beginning of the digression that I mentioned earlier in this podcast, and I described it in some detail, and that's why I described it in some detail, so that you would know what it's talking about when it comes to this point in the chiasmus. This is step D in the chiasmus, or the fourth element in the chiastic structure. And indeed, it's going to be mirrored on the other side of the chiastic structure when Jesus resumes his teaching that he left off at this point. Now for the fifth element, which is marked as element E. And this fifth element is chapter 17, where Jesus heals and prays for the people in words too sublime to be recorded. The next section, F, is chapter 17, verse 24, where angels come down and minister to the little ones who are encircled with fire. We all remember that story. That's a Book of Mormon favorite. The next step is G, once again moving toward the center of the chiasmus, which is chapter 18, where Jesus introduces the sacrament and then he departs. Now, the center of the chiasmus is H, which is chapter 19, verses 1 through 13, where all night word goes out and people gather to the temple the next day, where 12 disciples teach them what Jesus taught for those who weren't there. The previous day when Jesus was actually teaching it himself, they baptize them, and then Jesus appears again in verse 15. So this is the very center of this chiastic structure. And this ends up being a very natural center point for the chiastic structure because leading into the chiasm with these first seven elements, that covers what Jesus did during his first day ministering to the Nephites. The center of the structure is when Jesus has left and he's no longer there. That's the center of the structure and it will begin again moving its way out in reverse order on the second day after Jesus appears to continue his second day of ministering to the Nephites. Let's see how that mirrors the first day. Now, right before the centerpiece, we had G, where Jesus introduced the sacrament and departs. This is not the next thing that happens after the centerpiece working its way out. Instead, that doesn't happen until chapter 20, where the sacrament is again administered. You remember that the sacrament is administered twice during Jesus' ministry. This is the part where it is not a perfect chiasm. It is not a perfect mirror image of the seven elements coming in in the same order that those seven elements came in. They are not in the same order going out. Six of them are, but this one element of G is out of order by two spaces. I want to be clear about that and hopefully you'll be able to understand that and understand what it is I'm describing now as I move our way out of the chiasm. The next thing that happens after the centerpiece is we go back to F, not G, F. This is not a perfect chiasm, as I said at the outset. This is the one place where it's a bit out of order. But we go to F, which is chapter 19, verse 14, where in the first part of the chiasm, angels came down and ministered to the little ones who were encircled with fire. Now angels come down and minister to the 12 disciples who are, guess what, encircled with fire. It's an obvious parallel to the other story, and it's on the other side of the chiasmus, now working its way out. The next step is E, which is chapter 19, verses 16 through 36, where Jesus appears and once more there is a prayer fest in which Jesus prays words too sublime to be recorded. And that compares with the step leading into the chiasmus, which is chapter 17, where Jesus heals and prays for the people in words too sublime to be recorded. See, it's another parallel on both sides of the center of the chiasmus. Now we get to G. Now G is out of order. Prior to the chiasmus and immediately prior to the centerpiece, we had G, which was chapter 18, which is where Jesus introduced the sacrament to the Nephites right before he departed at the end of the first day. Now G comes in out of order in the recounting of the events on the second day, which is chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, 
where the sacrament is again administered. See, the sacrament is administered twice in the account of Jesus' ministry to the Nephites, once on the first day and again on the second day. Once again, it is out of order, but this appears to be the one piece that's out of order. This is what keeps this from being a perfect chiasm, and I want to be upfront and clear about that, that it is not a perfect chiasm. Nevertheless, there does appear to be a very definite structure being used to describe this ministry. The same elements occur on the first day as occur on the second day. With this one exception, they are the same going in as they are coming out. They are the reverse image going in as they are coming out. Once again, G is out of order. Now we go back to D. Originally, D had been Jesus introduces three verses from Isaiah, which was the beginning of the digression mentioned above. Now we go to the center of the chiasmus and coming back out, we get to D, which is chapter 20, verse 11, which says Jesus picks up again on where he left off with the three verses of Isaiah. Okay, that was the whole point of the digression to talk about where he leaves off with quoting Isaiah, goes on this long digression and picks it up again. So this wasn't just a three chapter digression for no reason. It appears to be a digression that was intentionally put into the text in order to superimpose this structure on Jesus's Nephite ministry that I've been talking to you about. Now we get to C. We've got three steps left going out of the chiasmus. The original C was chapter 16. Jesus teaches of the scattering and gathering of Israel in the last days. This C going out, which is chapter 20, verse 12, through all of chapter 22, where Jesus teaches concerning the scattering and gathering of Israel in the last days. See, it's another parallel. B, going in, was Jesus cites three chapters of the New Testament text. And yes, B coming out is chapters 22 through 25, where Jesus cites three chapters from the Old Testament. So the three chapters from the New Testament, not only book in the three chapters from the Old Testament, but they fit within a more complicated chiastic structure. And finally, the first part of the chiasm, A, was chapter 11, where Jesus appeared to the Nephites, and his first order of business was to do away with contention, and he set forth his doctrine consisting of faith, baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost. The last part of the structure is chapter 27. That is the last step coming out of the chiasm, the A step, where Jesus appears to his Nephite disciples, does away with contention, once again doing away with contention. In the first step, in chapter 11, it was specifically contention regarding the method of baptism. But here in this mirror image step at the end of the chiastic structure, Jesus is once again doing away with contention, but here it's specifically about contention relating to the name of the church. And once again, Jesus sets forth his gospel in verses 13 through 21, which is the same as the doctrine he set forth in chapter 11, i.e., faith, baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost. So in sum, what we have is a rather complicated chiastic structure that is superimposed upon the account of Jesus's ministry to the Nephites in 3rd Nephi. It takes into account all the chapters from the very beginning, chapter 11, to the very end, chapter 27, of his Nephite ministry. It is complicated in that there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven steps going in, an eighth step in the middle, and then seven steps going out, and these steps mirror each other exactly, with the one exception, as I've said before, of Jesus introducing the sacrament and departing just prior to the middle of the chiasmus, and it doesn't resume right after the middle of the chiasmus. Instead, it waits for two more steps before it is repeated. So with that one exception, and it's an important exception, once again, I'm not trying to make this perfect because it's not perfect, but it is still darn amazing. Every single thing that happens in the first part of Jesus's ministry does happen again in the second part of his ministry. And with that one exception of line G about the sacrament, it is an exact mirror 
image. And because it appears to be such an exact mirror image, it seems to have been done intentionally by the author. So conclusion, it is hard to see the structure, at least for me, as anything other than intentionally superimposed on the narrative. If this is the case, it means that at one and the same time as the ministry of Jesus was being dictated by Joseph Smith, number one, the New Testament chapters are cited first and brushed forward throughout the balance of Jesus's ministry. Number two, the Old Testament chapters are cited at the end and are brushed backward through the preceding recounting of Jesus's ministry. And number three, all of this is happening within the constraints of the literary structure described above being superimposed on the entirety of his ministry. This is why I call it three-dimensional chess. This is something that would be beyond my ability. This is like me reading that big fat chess book that I got when I was a kid and saying, no, this I can't do this. <laughs> I can play a basic game of chess, maybe, but this is beyond me. And then I conclude with, I am not arguing here that there is no way Joseph Smith could have done this. What I am arguing is that whoever did this created a literary masterpiece. It's a masterpiece, I say. They will cheer every word, every letter. So once again, let me repeat what I said yesterday. I'm not saying that the Book of Mormon is Shakespeare, okay? It's not. But on the other hand, it's not Dick and Jane either. There is a tendency sometimes among some ex-Mormons or post-Mormons or non-Mormons altogether to try and discount the Book of Mormon as something on the level of Dr. Seuss or Dick and Jane. And while Dick and Jane have its purpose, and Dr. Seuss certainly has its purpose, it is nowhere near the complexity that we find in the Book of Mormon, at least if we look for it, which I have attempted to do in analyzing the account of Jesus' ministry in 3rd Nephi. There's a wonderful scene in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Once again, I read the entire collection of Sherlock Holmes stories last year. It was in one volume. It was a Barnes & Noble volume all the stories about Sherlock Holmes. I had a great time doing it. It took me some time to do it because there's a lot of stories, but there's a wonderful story. It is actually The Adventure of the Dancing Men. It's a great story. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. But what happens without going into too much detail is that Sherlock Holmes goes to a manor house where there's been a horrible tragedy that has occurred. And the lord of the house is found in a room dead of a bullet to the heart. And his wife in the same room is gravely wounded from a gunshot to the head. The pistol from which the shots had been fired is found in the room. It is a six-shooter. There are two rounds missing from the pistol and four rounds remaining in the pistol. The local constable, who's already on the scene when Sherlock Holmes gets there, has looked at the scene and believes he's already figured it out. He says that it is an obvious murder-suicide attempt. That the wife had shot her husband in the heart and killed him, and then attempted to commit suicide by shooting herself in the head, but had only wounded herself instead of killing herself. And this theory accounts neatly for the fact that there are two bullets missing, one bullet in the chest of the husband and the second bullet in the head of the wife. So the wife then becomes the prime suspect of the murder of her husband. So Sherlock Holmes says to the constable, perhaps you can account also for the bullet which has so obviously struck the edge of the window. He had turned suddenly and his long thin finger was pointing to a hole which had been drilled right through the lower window sash about an inch 
above the bottom. See, this third bullet hole was not accounted for by the constable's theory, and in fact, it completely exploded the constable's theory that this was a murder-suicide. There was a third bullet involved that was not accounted for in the pistol that was found at the scene. By George, cried the inspector. However, did you see that? And then Holmes gives one of the greatest lines in all of the Sherlock Holmes stories. The inspector says, however, did you see that? And Holmes says, because I looked for it. Then how do you account for the bullet that has so obviously struck the window frame? By George, however, did you see that? Because Dr. Carthew, I looked for it. And in the same way, now I can't actually even recall how it was that I came up with this complexity in the Book of Mormon, but obviously something drew my attention to it. Something suggested a complexity there. And then I looked for it, just as Holmes looks for the third bullet hole and finds it just below the window on the interior of the same room. Now, the inspector never would look for that because as far as he's concerned, this is a simple case. He's got it all figured out. It took someone coming in and looking for an additional complexity that was not accounted for by the original simple theory in order to find a third bullet hole. A bullet hole, that means the simple theory was not correct. There was an added complexity to this case that was not accounted for by the original simple theory. And as I've been thinking back, I wondered what was it that suggested this complexity to me in the first place? And I went digging around in my computer and I found an original draft of an outline of this subject that went all the way back to 2008. Yes, 12 years ago I first committed the broad outline of this to paper. And it appears from that outline that the first thing that suggested itself to me was indeed the resumption that Jesus does during his ministry. He stops at one point, he begins three chapters later at the same point. And then after that, I continue to look and more and more pieces began to fall into place. More and more degrees of complexity presented themselves to my view. Now, I know it seems strange to many of you that Radio Free Mormon has such respect for the Book of Mormon as a text, and that I'm here talking about it on my program. But the facts are what the facts are, and the complexity in Third Nephi is what the complexity in Third Nephi is. Am I claiming that the Book of Mormon is true, or that the people described in the Book of Mormon actually lived on the American continent? No, I'm not, because I have serious doubts that that is the case based upon other evidence. What am I claiming? All I'm claiming, and what I'm trying to demonstrate, not just claiming, but what I'm trying to demonstrate is the fact that the account of Jesus' ministry to the Nephites as recorded in 3 Nephi chapter 11 through 27 has a complexity to it in the text that is not readily apparent to the casual reader and indeed was not apparent at all to me until I looked for it. Am I seeing something that is not there? That's up for you to decide. That's why I've gone to all this length to present the evidence to you so you could make that decision yourself. It seems to me that there is substantial evidence to support my theory regarding the complexity of 3 Nephi and the fact that the author of that account, whoever he was, was playing three-dimensional chess. Yes, you knew I'd get back to the original title, didn't you? That's the whole point. When I'm getting to the end of the episode. I do want to tell you that I intend at this point to assemble these three papers into one paper and submit them to an appropriate publisher for consideration. I have been published a number of times in the past in scholarly journals, twice in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies and twice in BYU Studies. And based upon that experience, I think that this is pretty good. I think somebody might be interested in publishing it. So I will let you know whether that happens. And right now I've got to figure out whether I want to submit it under my real name or under the name Radio Free Mormon. Would anybody publish it under Radio Free Mormon? 
I don't know. All I know is that I have come to the end of this podcast. It is Friday, April 17th, 2020. Thank goodness. It is Friday. I have gotten out an episode every weekday of this week. I've gotten out an episode every weekday of last week and the week before. I am burning the candle at both ends, trying to do my bit to help out during this coronavirus pandemic. But like my dad used to say, rest his soul, I burn my candle at both ends. It cannot last the night. But ah, my foes and oh, my friends, it makes a lovely sight. That's about all for tonight. Until next time... This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.